Welcome back to the Sports Docs Podcast with Dr. Katherine Logan and Dr. Ashley Bassett, where we chat about the most recent developments in sports medicine and discuss which literature should actually impact your practice. Thank you for joining us again. On today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Matskin and dive deeper into surgical management of meniscal tears, specifically focusing on bucket handle meniscus tears and post-surgical rehab. We'll start with the article by Aaron Kirsch and his team at the Mayo Clinic titled Comparative Outcomes of All-Inside versus Inside-Out Repair of Bucket Handle Meniscal Tears in OJSM. This study found no significant difference in clinical outcomes, retear rate, and complications between the two repair techniques. Interestingly, increased age trended towards decreased repair failure rate, attributed to less demand placed on the repair compared to younger patients. We'll follow that up with a more recent paper from the December 2020 issue of Arthroscopy, investigating the biomechanical performance of the latest all-inside meniscal repair devices. This lab study found that hand-tied orthocord suture repair was the strongest repair construct compared to newer all-inside devices, including the air, fast fix, and meniscal cinch. We then finish up with a discussion on post-op rehab after meniscus repair with a systematic review article titled, Weight-bearing versus non-weight-bearing after meniscus repair from sports health. So now, probably move on to away from root, maybe on to bucket handle at this time. Um, so we talked a bit about, you know, indications for surgical versus non-surgical treatment. For bucket handle, I feel like we probably all agree you're taking them for surgery. Repair versus metastectomy if it's dam- damaged or, or older. Um, and, you know, there's I think there's two camps, the inside out camp, which has been shown to be bio, biomechanically equivalent to all inside uh, repair, but all inside repair is certainly um, more expensive and has a risk of, of device complications. Um, so the study by Aaron Kirsch and his team found no difference in clinical outcomes, failure rates, and complications between inside out and all inside. So um, what is your preferred technique for bucket handle meniscus repair and why does it differ on the assistant you have? Does it differ on the patient that you're operating on or is it pretty much all the same? It, it actually just really depends on the patient and their tear. Um, my go-to is probably an all-inside repair, but I'm always prepared to do inside out, especially in the areas that may be harder to reach. I'm also always prepared if that tear goes all the way interiorly to do an outside in. You know, even if I have to take a spinal needle and send a suture in just to make sure I tack down that most anterior part, which can be super hard to get to any other way. So I think having, you know, options is really important. But for just a, you know, a very simple bucket handle that reduces perfectly and doesn't extend all the way, um, my go-to would be an all-inside. I think it's pretty quick in my hands, especially... The fact that most of these are with a concomitant ACL, um, I don't have to make another incision, but always prepare to do what I need to make sure I can stabilize that meniscus and give it the best chance to heal. And Ashley, I I think you brought up the assistant piece, um, which I believe you've told me before that you have a very experienced PA. I do. She's wonderful. (laughs) And she listens to this podcast, so she knows. (laughs) But yes, I, I, and we've talked about this, right? I mean, I think you have a perfect story you're probably about to tell where you had no assistant, you know, and and it's, you have to choose what's safest too for the patient. So um, yeah, Catherine, how do you approach this? 
Yeah, I would say I don't always have or haven't always had the luxury of having like an assistant who might be able to be my second pair of hands. I think what Ashley's referring to is I had a bucket um, in the very onset of COVID. So it was still in that um, period of time where nobody really even wanted to go into the OR um, and was like very nervous to do so. So I had my anesthesiologist and me and then a scrub tech kind of made up my back table, but like didn't stay. So, you know, in that scenario, obviously, you, you can't do um, an inside out. Um, just it was hard enough doing it all inside without anybody holding my camera. So I think, um, you know, for me, I know I've re more recently taken um, my athletic trainer to the lab and she's now very facile um, in inside out, you know, but just getting somebody comfortable with knowing like how to retrieve needles and, you know, it's much more of a process and, you know, being able to dial that in is, is important. And, you know, like Liz said, you know, just being able to do it safely, effectively, you know, try if you have to do a, um, a ligament as well, you know, you can't be under tourniquet for, you know, two and a half hours, just because you're trying to do a different technique. So I think, you know, trying to be efficient and reduce our tourniquet time always plays a role. Yeah. I also feel like patient preference somewhat kind of plays a role. I know patients don't um, complain too much about incisions, number of incisions, where they are, but you're still, if you do it all inside, you're still avoiding that, that big incision posteromedially or posterolaterally and, and the risks associated with that, the potential risk of nerve injury, um, more incisions to heal, soft tissue to heal, pain um, versus the all inside. So I feel like in, especially my younger athletes, if I can repair it all inside, I, I really do lean to that for those reasons. And what about um, Liz, when I was a resident for All Inside, I remember you using the fast fix. Is that still the case? It's still often what I use. It's what we have available. Um, but certainly, you know, I use multiple. I mean, I've played with many different devices. And then I also am always ready to pull out a, a Scorpion or a Soterix or something else if I feel like I need to pass sutures a different way. Yeah. Ashley, what about you? What do you guys have available? So I, I really like the fast fix, but I do, I do like to try the newer implants just to see, um, you know, I don't think you'll ever know if you prefer one implant over another, unless you try it. So I have tried the striker air recently, which, um, I liked the, the all suture, um, Arthrex, uh, meniscus repair implant, um, is also nice. I feel like that was more usable than their prior meniscus repair, um, options. So, um, but I just feel like, you know, I, I've used FastFix now for many years. I know how it works. I know how, you know, it, it just, it's muscle oh, memory, right? <laughs> so if it isn't broke, don't fix it. That's usually the one that I'm using. Um, but definitely open to checking out different devices just to stay as, you know, updated as possible. And I think that one advantage of the um, the striker and the Arthrex, you can kind of bend them yes. more. So I think yes. if you are trying to get that mid-body anterior, like there's a chance, yeah. you know, <laughs> maybe. And also you have to keep, this is what my um, surgery center keeps telling me, you can keep less implants on the shelf because you don't have to have the curve up, curve down, any of the sides. You can have one and you can bend it however you want, which really does. I mean, that saves, it saves money. It saves the amount of implants you have to have and potentially waste. Um, so yeah, that's a very important point. I know that the new meniscus all suture one from Arthrex um, and the striker air, you can bend both of those. Yeah. 
So that paper also looked at um, how bucket handles have about a 20% failure rate. Um, so do you guys, either of you, um, Liz, we'll start with you. Do you ever augment your repairs with anything? Do you do any biologics, um, any PRP? Um, do you even have that discussion? Is that available at the surgery center? So it is available, but for most of my bucket handle tears, I'll do a abrasion chondroplasty or a microfracture in the notch, and that is my uh, augmentation. Uh, I've tried doing some clots. I, I've not done any BMAC or PRP for these. What about you, Ashley? I had one um, case in, in recent memory that was a young um, athlete who had a bucket handle meniscus where just at that junction between the posterior horn and the body, the tissue just looked really poor quality. Um, it was just, it was almost like red, white, closer to white zone. It was a, a weird tear pattern. Um, obviously he was 14. I did a repair. The majority of it came together very nice, but that one area was questionable. So I did send him for um, post-operative PRP. We have a physician in our group who does our biologic injections. So he saw her within one week postoperatively to have the PRP injection done intraarticularly. Um, that was the one most recently. I don't routinely do it in the operating room, um, but I know some people that do. So Catherine, do you, if you're going to do biologic augmentation, do you have it right there in the operating room or do you do it postoperatively? If I'm going to do it, we have it right there. Um, and it's done, you know, like within the surgery center, but it's certainly not the norm. Mm -hmm. um, in fellowship, it was pretty common. Um, and it was done, you know, almost routinely, I would say, but, you know, out in my practice, I would say it's more, it's generally a discussion than it's usually um, instigated by the patient or initiated, I should say, by the patient. Um, and then I would say I, I lie on the real conservative side of it. You know, it's a big financial burden to the patient. So I think kind of really talking them through it and say, hey, this is where the evidence lies. Um, you know, we certainly don't have a, oh, yes, this is definitely going to make all the difference in the world. But at the end of the day, you know, if we discuss the risks and benefits, it's something that we have available, but it's certainly not the norm. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Catherine. The financial aspect needs to be discussed. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think it should be the norm. I think in a lot of these younger individuals, they have the um, underlying biology to heal this well on their own. I don't know that we need to be infiltrating their knee with uh, PRP or BMAC or any of that. Um, the conversation I had was with the patient and his parents. And I said, you know, I really want this to heal. I don't want to have to do a revision repair in that one area that's additional surgery, recovery time, missed athletics. And this was actually right before COVID, um, or right in maybe in the middle of COVID. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where it was a discussion to be had, but I told him that it was not wrong to proceed without PRP. And I feel like that's important to emphasize to our patients that it's a lot of money um, out of pocket. So that's an yeah. important discussion to have. For sure. Um, Ashley, is there anything else you want to touch base on with all inside techniques? So no, I mean, we talked about, um, the repair device. Um, I guess we can kind of move on to, um, post-operative, how you manage them, which I think is a really interesting topic because I think people are moving towards different post-operative protocols based on the tear. So Liz, for your, um, meniscus repairs, maybe let's start with bucket handle and then talk about root repairs. What is your post-operative protocol look like um, for that weight bearing wise, brace wise, range of motion wise? So um, for my patients who have a meniscal repair, they're put in a brace, uh, locked in extension for six weeks while weight bearing. They can certainly unlock it to bend when they're sitting. 
Uh, I do let them weight bear as tolerated pretty much right away for my root repairs. I try and put them on partial weight bearing for the first two weeks and then they can weight bear as tolerated with their brace locked in extension. Um, for all of them, we avoid weighted flexion past 90 degrees for, I try and push it out for a good four months. Um, just be, you know, there's not much reason for them to be doing weighted flexion past 90 degrees. You know, if they bend down once to tie their shoe, that's fine, but they certainly shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be doing squats or anything in the gym past 90 degrees. I try to get them out to that six month mark before I clear them for that. I think I remember you even posting something on Twitter about, you know, what is everybody's protocol for root? And I remember reading through it and it's like all over the place, you know, as far as like there's not a lot of um, consensus, you know, and I think like I would say, you know, I've gotten a little bit more aggressive if it's a smaller size tear with weight bearing, but I haven't gone fully there. Um, so I, I think, you know, perhaps over time I will, but what made you more comfortable? Was it just time? Well, I mean, I hope I leave the operating room with a pretty solid repair that I trust. And I think, you know, if they're, they're not shearing, if they're just waiting with locked in extension, I would think that it should be okay. I mean, there's plenty of studies that demonstrate, you know, some weight is healthy for the tissue and the healing and cartilage and everything else. Um, I also think that in some of these patients who are getting the root repairs, I think non-weight bearing is extremely difficult for them. And I'm not so sure that they're compliant with those protocols to begin with. So if I can lock them in a brace for extended extension, I feel like I can let them weight bear as tolerated. And I'm sorry, you may have said this, but I, I think I missed it. For range of motion passively, do you limit them for either one? No. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Cause I, I read this article when I was, you know, I'm sure Catherine went through this too. You're like thinking through your rehab protocols and trying to use science to guide that. And there was something I read about um, knee flexion, pulling on the posterior root um, of the meniscus and worrying about doing active knee flexion too soon. So I worried about that, but then people get stiff and they're going to get stiff anyway, from a root repair, right? Because that population is kind of predisposed to it. So that's nice to know you don't limit them in terms of that full passive motion, active motion, and they're okay. Good to know. No, but the majority of them are probably not getting much past 90, 100 degrees for the first few weeks anyway. Um, they seem to self-limit, but I don't limit their passive range of motion. Um, and then what about if you had like more of, um, kind of radial tears, do you change anything with that or all the same? I don't, I pretty much treat them almost all of them in a brace locked in extension. Weight bearing is tolerated. Sometimes I'll try and, you know, in some of my younger patients, like really, really want to slow down. I'll try and get them to do partial weight bearing for the first couple weeks. Um, but that's pretty much, you know, pretty simple, which, which actually keeps it pretty easy for everyone involved, for the physical therapists I work with and for my PA and um, anyone who's involved in the patient care, you know, we're not changing it up too, too much. And when do you see them, Liz? Like, what's the frequency? I see them at two weeks and six weeks, then three months, and then usually five or six months after post-op. 
do you put them, young athletes, do you put them through any sort of return to play analysis? Obviously not as intensive as ACL, but do you put them through any type of return to play testing before they're cleared to go back in? Or is there a certain time point at which they are? So, I, you know, minimum, I try and keep them out for a minimum of six months after an isolated, you know, meniscal repair. Uh, I don't have a specific testing protocol, but certainly I talk with their therapist on a pretty regular basis. Um, for a lot of the younger kids, I will do um, uh, biodex or testing to make sure their strength is equal to their other side. I think that's also just really good for the athletes to see where they're at, because if their strength isn't close, they know they have more work to do. And I think seeing it out on paper after they've been tested really helps motivate them or, or help them realize they may not be ready for competitive sports yet. Um, and then it's just, you know, we start doing more sports specific training after that six month mark. And I think a lot of it really depends on where they are in their season and at what level they are and how much I have to really push the envelope or if I can buy a little bit more time. I don't think they have the same sort of like psychological issue return to sport as ACLs do. I mean, I know there's, you know, we can't ignore it completely, but it does like the return return to sport just doesn't seem as intense of a decision process, you know, as it does with ACL. But you know, I think laying it out to them such that they actually like kind of see where they're at, you know, to say like, oh, wow, I'm really behind. I really need to do some more conditioning, <laughs> you know, is a good motivation for those younger ones. Definitely. What about you, Ashley and Catherine? What's your post-operative rehabilitation protocol? So I'm listening to people. I'm realizing I'm very much on the conservative end. Um, I non-weight bear my meniscus repairs any type for four weeks, six weeks, if it was a tenuous repair, um, six weeks for um, roots. And I limit flexion, active or passive till 90 degrees for four weeks. And root repairs, I had contemplated limiting it till six, but now I'm moving it towards four because as you were saying, they all get stiff um, and they self-limit to 90 degrees. So if anything, I need to be pushing them. So, um, but I remember even in residency hearing that in, with a, with a bucket handle, it's a longitudinal tear, you weight bear, you're actually helping reduce, you're pushing the tear together. It makes sense that that would help stimulate healing, but I just haven't gotten gutsy enough to let them weight bear yet. <laughs> oh, the one thing that we're, we started to do in clinic and it's not so much, um, a test as much as like a feedback kind of thing is we have, um, force plates, uh, just to give them a sense of like, hey, you're actually not very symmetric that when you're weight bearing, even though you think you are like as they're weaning off crutches, and they're getting to like full weight bearing, you know, just having them in stance or like those like mini kind of squats, just trying to give them some feedback of saying like, I know you think you're 50 50, but you're actually like 70 30. Um, so we use that for a little bit of a training tool. And eventually you can do jumping on it, you know, um, drop jumps, single leg um, hops, those sort of things to kind of look at their symmetry. But that's one thing. It's so it's not so much a return to sport test as just sort of like a feedback. I think it's important to do something. I had a, a young kid who he felt he was ready and his PT where he was going had felt he was ready. And we sent him, actually sent him for the ACL return to play testing just because something seemed, he seemed weak. He just didn't seem ready. And he failed a lot of the balance metrics, like a lot of the functional movement analyses. And, and I'm yeah, within three, 
four weeks of additional PT, he was better and ready to go. But I, I was happy I sent him for that. I don't think every patient needs the ACL return to play 90 minute analysis. But like you're saying, I think people can think they're ready before they are. So any testing I think is important to highlight deficiencies. We're almost done. We yes. literally have this thing called a fast five, which is just basically five kind of rapid fire questions um, that have nothing to do with the articles. Um, so Ashley, go. Oh. Okay. So what band or artist do you listen to in the OR or Pandora station, if that's your preference? Zach Brown band. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, foot pedal or a handheld shaver or wand? 100%. Um, hand controls for everything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Price said uh, uh, foot pedal. I was saddened. <laughs> All right. Favorite surgery? Female ACL reconstruction. What type of shoes do you wear in the OR? Running sneakers. And then favorite physician lounge snack or snack to grab between cases? That I bring or that is available in the surgery center <laughs> maybe what's available in the surgery center <laughs> so we have a choice of graham crackers rich crackers <laughs> or saltines so it's really it's it's not that good <laughs> so none of them what do you bring candy 100 <laughs> percent all right well, that's all we have. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat, especially when you're you're running around um, to Trinity. No, thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Episode 6 of the Sports Talks Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review. You can also reach us by email at thesportsdocspod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at thesportsdocspod. Stay fit, friends. 